What Are You Made Of? It's Mike C-Rock. Welcome to What Are You Made Of? Every episode of this podcast is centered around building ourselves and the people in our lives to reach our full potential. I hope that the experiences and stories of success from these conversations can give you rocket fuel to reach new heights and help you answer the question, What Are You Made Of? What Are You Made Of? Welcome back to the What Are You Made Of? podcast with your boy, Mike C-Rock. I'll tell you what, guys, I've been uh, on a journey and a mission here, and I jammed a whole bunch of episodes together all at once in the wintertime, and then I had so many that uh, I had to slow down a little bit, which is hard for me to do because I'm filled with rocket fuel, as you know. Uh, so I slowed down a little bit, and now I'm uh, hand-selecting guests as they come and being very, very particular with what I bring to you because I want to really bring quality to you. Not that I haven't in the past, but I really want to take a lot of time and effort into bringing you uh, some great guests with great stories. And you know, our guest today, Sean Calgi, he's an entrepreneur, national speaker, philanthropist, and one of America's top trial attorneys, online personality, and creator of various peak performance technologies. Oh, and he's legally blind warrior and adventurer. So I, I want to get into too much of this, Sean. I want to let you tell us what you're made of. And, uh, you know, a lot of people send me bios and there are some long, some short, but my favorite thing is to let you tell us about yourself. So Sean, welcome to the show, first of all. And what are you made of? Yeah, Mike, thank you. And thank you everybody for listening. So what I'm made of, I think I'm the byproduct of a whole bunch of incredible people. My grandparents, my parents, coaches, others that instilled in me a belief that people of ordinary intelligence, ordinary gifts from God can create extraordinary outcomes in their life through consistent hard work, learning, incredible commitment to process and being in their heart. So my life stands for that there's so much more that all of us are capable of and can possibly produce. And without judgment, if anybody chooses to do it or not, I'm here to help free that up because I learned an incredible amount from the people who've taught me and I learn every day and I teach and share every day. And my life is about possibility. I love it, man. I love it. Now, when did you start figuring out that and realizing that that's the case though? What age were you? Yeah. So I'd say I was four or five sitting in my grandma Rose's one bedroom railroad apartment in Jersey city, New Jersey. Um, my parents were divorced when I was one and she would take care of me as my mom worked and my dad worked. And I watched Batman and Batman, James Bond, Star Wars a couple of years later. You know, all these things were simple, commonly, you know, seemingly common people in, in a variety of ways, or, or at least people that did extraordinarily more than others with similar gifts. And so, like, that was present. And I became a huge uh, sports fan, Muhammad Ali, who's behind me here in my library. You know, he was at the the middle to the end of his career when I was, you know, three, four, five, six, seven years old. I cried the day he lost to Leon Spinks and I couldn't have been happier when he gained his heavyweight title back for the third time. Miracle on ice over my right shoulder happened in 1980 when I was 10 years old. And I like tracked that the entire time. I couldn't say I saw it coming. I was 10 years old, but I understood at least at some level what was at stake. And by the time I was 10, I believed miracles could happen. Literally at 10 years old, you know, Al Michaels is screaming, do you believe in miracles? Yes. And I already did. And I saw it. And then in 1986, as a Mets fan, I was there. And I love front, it. <laughs> I was Lenny Dykstra. Lenny Dykstra. Amen, brother. I was <laughs> in the front row 
when the ball rolled through Bill Buckner's legs. Are you serious? Box 113A at Shea Stadium was in the last row of the upper deck. And my dad was downstairs uh, at the game with some you know, people he was there with. And he, they, some people left. He came up and got me. So right as the 10th inning happened, when the Mets had the greatest comeback in World Series history, the most improbable of improbable, I was there. And I was, I mean, the hugest Mets fan match. I had tears coming down my face when I thought they were going to lose, but I wouldn't, I would not give up. The entire stadium gave up. Like I would not allow myself to give up. So maybe it was just faith, faith and belief. It can happen. Yeah. You know, that's phenomenal, man. And I, I grew up watching sports, uh, die hard Phillies, everything fan. But at the end of the day, when the Phillies didn't make it somewhere or the Eagles didn't make it, I always found a team in the playoffs to root for. And I, I loved Lenny Dykstra. He was one of my favorites. I, yeah. I think, I think that's that attitude that he has and that hustle is ingrained in me from a young age and I can relate to it. And, uh, you know, the, I, I just had that, that grinding mentality and he always had that, although he did get really big and muscular. Uh, I'm not sure how, but when he came to the Phillies, that was my, I mean, my favorite player. So, uh, man, I can relate to that so much. And when you're a kid, you know, the great thing about being a kid is there's really no limitations when you're first starting out as a child. And as you grow, the limitations grow on you from other people, your environment, your surroundings and family members and what have you. But let's speak on, uh, some of the, some of the limitations and adversities that you've dealt with growing up. And then tell us, tell me how, and the audience, how do you use that to get to where you are now and overcome a lot of things like that? So as I said, thank you, Mike. Uh, and I'm clear on your heart, brother, and your soul. It just screams you know, from inside of you about your desire you. to impact people. So thank you for that. So I was 16, I was 17. In fact, my daughter's 17th birthday is today. And on my 17th birthday, I found that I was going to go blind. And that's what mom told me. We knew since I was five. My grandfather had my same eye condition, retinitis pigmentosa. And, um, you know, I'd like to dramatize the story and say it hit me like a ton of bricks. It, it didn't hit me like anything. I was like, oh, okay. You know, like, you know, got it. And I'd seen my grandfather go through everything he went through. My heart was so, you know, big for him. But all I wanted to do was be a professional baseball player at that point. You know, I even had visions that I could play professional football, maybe. You know, as a D1 uh, recruit in both. And I was like, you know, I'm going to make this work and I'm going to go blind later. Like I'll deal with this. I'll deal with that. Then I'm going to deal with this now. So I ended up at Columbia university. I was a four year starter. I was captain my senior year in baseball. And I was told I was going to get drafted all the way through. I had a tryout with the Mets uh, when I was 18, you know, invited tryout 25 people. And I was the fastest guy at the tryout. So, you know, I was, I wouldn't have been a high draft pick, but I would have been like, you know, mid round to late round draft pick. What position? Uh, I played center field. Okay. Oh, I was an outfielder too. I love it. Awesome. And so, but um, my eyes started to affect me. And, and one of the hardest days of my life, Mike, was I was a senior captain and we were playing at West Point against Army. And a fly ball got hit to me in the outfield. Bases were loaded. We're up two runs. It was a routine fly ball. And I just didn't see it. And I had started my senior year to really have some challenges, you know. And when I say challenges, like I wouldn't see one out of like a hundred fly balls. But one out of 100 is way too many, mm -hmm. right, and, and at that level. And so for the second time my senior year, the first time it didn't matter, and this time it did. And three runs scored. We lost to Army, and I felt so selfish. I felt so horrendous. It was like the lowest point of my entire athletic career. And, you know, at that point in my life, you know, and for that reason and several others, 
you know, kind of got out where my eyes were and my condition. I had to be honest with the scout that was 84, super high on me. It's an unbelievable impact in my life. You know, he's passed, but just what a human being. And he's like, yeah, like we're not going to be able to do this. And so on June 1st, 2nd, 3rd of 1992, I sat by my telephone, hoping and praying the phone ring, having absolute certainty that it wasn't going to, uh, but still just felt like I was, I guess, in the process of mourning, like my baseball career, like right then and there. And so when that was done. I was like, what now? Because I had only wanted to be an athlete my whole life. You know, every mentor, I had incredible high school coaches, just unbelievable men. And so it's just the only world that I knew that like represented like what the best of life was and team and love and connection. I just had such incredible high school teammates and their friends to, to this day. So after that, I was like, I don't know, like I just got to figure it out. And so I went to work for a bank in New York for a year. And then I'm like, ah, this is not what I want to do. I'm just going to go to law school because I just don't know what else to do. My grandparents nor my uh, parents went to college. And my grandfather's always like, you're going to be a doctor. You're going to be a doctor, right? And because I, I guess, you know, when they didn't have money, the image of a doctor was like something, you know, big and important. And so lawyer felt close enough to doctor. So I decided to go to law school, not because I had any passion to be a lawyer, but just in my head was like, be a professional, like go to school and you'll figure it out. And so first of all, while you were having the eye issues, did you have glasses or contacts or were you wearing any corrective? Yeah, no, I, I wore glasses my whole life, you know, and it, but with my eye condition, it, it doesn't help that part of the condition. But plus, I had other eye issues, astigmatism. Right. So right. I, wore, I wore glasses my whole life. Right. So, yeah. So, your condition wasn't really necessarily the same thing as astigmatism does. Because I, I was uh, nearsighted for I don't know how long. I wore contacts, the thickest glasses you could ever see. Then I finally got Lasix. But I, I dealt with that not being able to see for years. And yeah. I, I can't see any, I can't see my finger in front of my face right now. So, what do you have now that, where, what can you see? I could see nothing in front of me. Actually, that's not true. I could see that there's like light right here. I have no idea how big your face is. Well, actually now I could look, I could see peripherally. So I could see my fingers out here. I could see my finger, can't see my finger. Gotcha. Okay. Can't see, can't see, can't see, can't see, can't see, can't see. Can't see can't. Now I could see it again. So I have like wide peripheral, but even my peripheral is probably one third of yours, you know, like, so I can, mm-hmm. you know, just like do this. And see out the sides and then take yeah. one third of it. That's what I got. So now you can you read Braille now? I cannot. I, listen, I've been, uh, I knew this was coming. And so I got it in high gear and I made sure that I had all the optics in place. So I'm very blessed. Um, I have people that could read for me. I own a 125 person law firm. I'm blinded. You know, I've created a lot of processes. You know, I have a driver, you know, my life is very blessed, Mike. And, you know, so I have things in place that help me with all those things. Now that, that speaks to something though, because there's things in business where people have, it's not their eyesight, right? But it's their weaknesses, so to speak in yeah. business. Right. And, you know, we talk about a lot of times is hire your weaknesses. So, you know, this is obviously not the same exact thing, but you did something there where the people should be doing in their business and their lives where they're weak in something and they don't, have the time to develop it. They should focus on their strengths, which you have, and I'll let you speak on this, but also put in place people to handle things in their business so that there's, so, cause you can make excuses, right? You can play this victim role and it's the same thing with weaknesses in people's businesses on a different scale. And they make the reason that they're not successful, those reasons, right? So you did something that I always talk about in business and teaching people in business and how to do this to overcome anything that's in their way. No excuses, remove, I call it remove all obstacles. 
And, uh, you know, that's exactly how you attack that. And how did you know to attack it that way? Yeah. I mean, what pops is those skis over my head up there. I think you can see them, right? See two yeah. skis? Yeah. yeah. Those are my Uncle Jimmy's skis. And he was the first person in my indirect family line to go to college. And he did go on to become a doctor, right? This is my mom's brother. And he told me at a young age, he's like, Sean, and he was like the only economic success that I had in my optics, right? And he said, just never do anything that you could pay somebody else to do for less, as long as you're going to use that time to do what you can do. So I didn't have money. I graduated from law school with $100,000 of debt, you know, living in a tiny apartment. And when I first bought my house, I mean, I, you know, I still barely had any money. I never have to this day in my life. I've never, and I didn't grow up with money, right? I've never mowed a lawn, right? I have never done my laundry. I have uh, never cleaned my house. Uh, I've never cleaned uh, my pool, right? Like those things I've never done in my life. And I made sure that I was doing, and I'm not judging people for not, right? But I was, to this day, like what I taught my kids, right, is to live in those optics. Now it's different if like you don't do those things, then you don't use that time productively and don't have the money, then right. I mean, that's crazy, right? But I did that from the very beginning, leveraging myself forward in every single way. And I could not agree with you more. And I think there's so much in what you shared about like, then like, what is the optimal things to be focused on and doing? So I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. My wife and I have this conversation quite often because one, I mean, I don't mind doing laundry, but, uh, and she's going to give me a dirty look cause she's sitting over here, but, <laughs> but no, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that if you can do more with the, your time, then the lower leverage jobs, you should definitely take advantage of that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't like cutting grass, but, and I also don't want to do it because I know that I can make more money doing something else. Now, the other thing some people would say is, well, yeah, you know, if, if you're doing that and you're not taking advantage of that time, you know, but then also refreshing yourself and, and recharging yourself to maximize the time that you are working is, is important. So those of you watching right now, this is important. This is a very important tip, man. And scaling businesses, this is holds people back all the time is doing low leverage duties, I'll call them, um, is something that takes up your valuable time. And time obviously is a commodity that we have limited of, limited amount of. And so this is one of the biggest points that I talk about all the time. And I hate to have this argument with people. And then they think that I'm lazy when I tell, tell them this. I don't like doing laundry. I don't want to do laundry. I worked and you know I, I mixed mud growing up, laid brick growing up. I've done hard work. I don't mind the hard work. I bust my butt in the gym and do hard work. But at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, I will not do the stuff that I can have somebody else do. It's just, and you have to have a hard line in the sand on it because what will happen is if you start doing it again or somebody leads you down that road and creeps you back into it and puts a guilt trip on you, then you're, you're limited again. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's what holds people back. I cleaned out, when I was 16 years old, I cleaned out perfume vats. Like I cleaned out perfume vats, slept where, uh, swept warehouse floors. I loaded dart boards in 105 degree trailers onto trailers all summer long, right? And I worked in a factory, like picking parts off of shelves and loading crates and boxes. Those are my jobs at 16, 17, 18. You know, so yeah, like I, th- there's, and clearly I don't have any question about your work ethic. It just, it's about math, right? It's just about math. Simple. It's math. Yep. If you can do something that makes more money, like, why would you want to do that? Right. And, and, um, and by the way, some people like those things. Some people are like, oh, I feel good doing laundry, cutting the grass. It's stress relieving. I don't judge it. Then do it. Have fun. Like it's a hobby then that's cool. Exactly. But if it's something you don't love doing, then like, yeah, 
you know, the, the law for, I, uh, today, you know, I've been privileged to build a number of successful companies, right? And the fir- when I first built my law firm, I did everything. I mean, this is when there were still typewriters in 1997. And I was typing on a typewriter these things, you know, that filings that I would do when I figured all this kind of stuff out by myself, started my own law firm on a credit card, scared out of my mind every single day, want to quit every single day. And all I was committed to doing was replacing myself at every job function, you know, and now in that department, you know, we have probably somewhere around 60 or 70 people that do, I did every one of those jobs and we divide it to probably 14 different jobs with now scaled numbers of people doing it. And, you know, it, it created business ownership, not operatorship for me. And I had, you know, incredible blessings. And now we're scaling that, taking that all over the place. So I would never have thought that way, though. And most, this is why most attorneys, when I tell these stories, they don't even comprehend what I'm talking about because they, these are really smart people, wonderful people, or accountants or professionals, doctors. Like you could scale anything, anything you can scale if you think this way. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And I'm seeing explosive growth in my business since we started operating this way. And can you speak on, I started a company called People Building Inc. And it's all focused on helping companies understand how important their people are to invest time, money, and effort into their people, developing them not just in their skills at the office, but also their relationship skills, their communication skills, their leadership skills, et cetera. Because once you do that, one, the people will stick around longer. But when you do that as a whole, it's exponentially powerful with the whole team together for your company. How much focus did you guys put on people building, so to speak? Because again, your employees' family problems become your firm's family problems. Yeah, people right? stay for, yeah, amen. People stay where they are for three reasons. To grow personally, to grow professionally, and to grow financially, right? That's what people want, I believe, right? So and people overall want more money, time, and magic in their life. The individual person wants more money, more time, more magic. So to answer your question directly, my whole creation of my own law firm was rooted in the idea that I want to see if personal development and all the things we're talking about actually worked. So I quit my dream job at the age of 27, six months out of law school, 100K in debt, and started my own law firm, my credit card. I jumped off a cliff. Everybody said I was out of my mind. Burnt the ships. Yeah, brother, I burnt them. Right. And to the point that the managing partner at a super prestigious New Jersey law firm, I was the top recruit. He had also gone to Columbia undergrad as I did. He said to me, like, you're having some kind of adjustment disorder. Nobody quits here. You're only six months in. Like, why don't we get you a little bit of help and counseling? I'm like, and you know, call him Joe, right? I'm like, Joe, I love you, man. Like, but I don't need counseling to know that I don't see my future here. And there's there's nothing wrong, like, you know, but I see a different path. So right from the beginning, as I was studying the work of Tony Robbins, J. Abraham, uh, this incredible gentleman that wrote a book, How to Make a Fortune from Public Speaking. This is back in 1997 to 1998. I was completely obsessed with figuring out how personal development worked and why it did and didn't work for some people. Because I didn't want to accept, Mike and everybody, the answer that, well, you know, you just got to apply yourself. I saw a lot of people trying to apply themselves and working their guts out and not getting what they wanted. So I became obsessed with what are the micro distinctions, the small screw turns, those tiny things that make it all come together and work. So I have nonstop from the day I opened my first law firm through selling that firm and the coaching and training company that I own, selling that to moving into the current law firm I own and my own personal development company, other companies that I own, all of these things 
I have non-stop trained my people. And I create a formula to train them in, which is what my company on Blind did teaches, but I've been teaching that to my own staff for 20, it, as it evolved for 22 years. And how much of the success of the firm has stemmed from that? I know the uh, answer, but. 100%. Like th- there, is, there is no firm without it. Like there is no firm without it. I don't even leave without that formula. And then all these unbelievable people that help me scale and build, without it, there's nothing. And so 100%, like it is, like there's things that are indispensable. It's like if you have cake mix and you don't put in, you know, I don't know, eggs, milk, right? Like you don't have cake, right? Like you have something else, you don't have cake, right? So there is no firm. There is no like unblind, like I don't have anything that I have, right? Without those things, period. I love it, man. I love it. And I want to talk to you more offline about the, uh, the uh, coaching business that you have, because I'd love to pick your brain on that sometime. But one thing I want to mm-hmm. ask you about, I watched a uh, video that you'd had back in 2018, I believe it was, and you were talking about the incremental differences in mastery and how big of a difference one-tenth, like you're talking about ranking something on the scale of one to 10, and then yeah. one-tenth the difference between eight and 8.1. And uh, you know that, that hit me hard because you know the thing is, I'm looking at that, and um, as you go up the scale, uh, you're talking about the difference of a, a movie star as opposed to an actor that just does commercials. Do you recall that video? It's Bro, a while back. I, I recall did. it, yeah. And if I could, I'll give it to you quick math. If you're in the 99th, people talk about the, you know, the top 1%. Well, let's talk top 10%. If you're in the top 10% of income earners in the US, you make about $100,000 a year. 95th percent, about 150. 99th, about 400,000. So from 90 to 99, you go up about $300,000, right? You go from 99 to 99.9, you're at 1.7 million. 99 to 0.9 to one more nine, 99.99, you're at 7.8 million. Three nines, you're at $56 million. So once you're in the top 1%, you go to 1.7, 7.8, 56. As you add a 0.9, 0.9, another nine, another nine. Those micro distinctions make everything. And like, it, dude, that is the core of everything I believe in at the highest level. And it traces back all the way back to the beginning of when you start an activity or you start a commitment to something or a decision to do something, the little things that you do to get to that yeah. mastery level, right? So I talk yeah. to my kids about this all the time. And the people at my office think that I'm crazy when I talk about the little things. You know, there's things that we do that the outcome of or the result of the actions that we're taking in our company are nothing else but team building and getting into the habit of doing the small things and accomplishing the little things. And Mm -hmm. they say, well, this isn't that big of a deal. No, it is. Right. I mean, one of the greatest things I ever had the privilege of doing, and it was a dream of mine. Two summers ago, I took my entire law firm to Grand Cayman. I took like 100 people. Everybody's invited. Maybe it was 90 could go. You know, it was 125 people invited, 90 could go. And we did everything. I mean, you know, people got certified to scuba dive. We stayed at the Ritz-Carlton. People could eat whatever they want. I'm talking some of these people had never been on a plane before. You know, this was lawyers and people that answered the telephone, you know, and literally some had never been on a plane before. And what, first of all, what that did for me to be able to give that gift to people who'd done so much to support me and my dreams and vision. And then what it did for them, the cohesion, the team, all of it. And that came, you know, share an athletic background that came from an athletic background going up, growing up. You know, if people don't have fun together, don't love each other, don't laugh together, 
like have a great time, um, I don't think things stick. So yeah, developing your best thing in people is critical. I have beach parties in my beach house. We get surf instructors, you know, we have like tiki bars. I'm not a drinker, but love, you know, tiki bar and people playing beer pong, hanging out, having fun. Like, you know, I'm not advocating like that kind of, you know, activity, but you know, which is, Hey, whatever people want to do, we're having fun. We're getting crazy, you know, ice creams and sandwiches. It's just nuts, you know, and I just like having fun and letting people have fun the way they want to have fun. Love it, man. Hey, uh, did you happen to know Bill Campbell, the football coach from Columbia? I know the name. Uh, I did not know him personally. Okay. So uh, so I heard about him through a book called the trillion dollar coach and he coached at Columbia and he wasn't the best wins and losses, but he was great at developing people. And he ended up coaching the business coaching, the founders of Google. And I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a new, it's a new book that just came out this year or late last year called the trillion dollar coach. You should check it out. Uh, great read. And it's the founders of Google. I believe that are writing the book after Bill died because he, they would, I don't think he'd been okay. They said with uh, with them writing the book prior to that, but it, it's a really good inside scoop on what what happened there and uh, how they were coached by a football coach. <laughs> I, I, I believe in that at the highest level, man. And I didn't know that. I can't wait to read it. Thank you, Mike. That's phenomenal. And look, we'll we'll end on this question here. Uh, when you're growing your law firm, you're at a hundred some hundred some attorneys, is it or employees? Uh, one hundred twenty five employees currently, but and let me just like because this is one piece we didn't put in and like, right. Sure. I walk my kids to school every day in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. I took my kids to school seventh, eighth grade till my son who's 20 years old got his driver's license. So I didn't, I didn't share that part. That's the greatest success of my life. And I coached all their sports teams. They played in a thousand games and other more than a thousand uh, games. Um, my daughter had great high school careers and junior careers, uh, travel. And the only games that I missed nine games total where there wasn't a conflict. I mean, you know, some of the games I missed when I was with my son or my daughter, like vice versa, if they had conflicting times, but I missed nine games. That's the greatest success of my life. And so like, I just want people to hold the perspective that we could have all these things be possible. And only now am I really, I was a business owner much more than operator. Am I scaling again? My kids are older. You know, my daughter is leaving for college. She should graduate high school. So I'm like in a huge growth mode. Started yeah. about eight months ago, and I had really been in dad mode, enjoying a beautiful income in life for a long time. And now I want to teach other people how to do that. Yeah, no, that leads into my last question, actually. So, no, I love that, man. And I, you know, being a father after going through the things I did as a kid, I mean, my focus is making sure my kids don't ever, ever, ever go through something like that. Although, you know, I look at it as well as what it's what made me, and and I have this fire inside of me because of it. So it's a double edged sword in a way. But my last question, though, leads to when you grew your your firm. When is enough to you, or is there ever enough? And you know, I, I say this because I don't believe there's ever enough. I always believe in growing and growing and growing. But I'm asking your your view of it on how you look at your business. And you know, I know you were in dad mode, and you were at, at some point still probably growing during that period. But what's your view on that? So my view is I will be impact my desire. You know, God willing, is to impact the world to the day I die. I believe that we're here to co-create simple, fun, and magical. Simple, fun, and magical micro distinctions in frictionlessness that free exponential abundance in people's money, time, and magic. And I'm going to be doing that for the rest of my life. And we are building, and I'm blinded, you know, my company, we are on fire and we are building that. And it's not about me, it's about scaling and partnering with the world in a mechanism that it's not, it's not network marketing, nor my diminishing network marketing. 
Uh, it's a true partnership model of scaling and building something that's never been built before. Because I don't want anybody to have to stumble their way through the world of personal development and figure out like the formula and like, well, how do you do it? And, you know, and so my commitment is to make sure that the world has that information. So to me, we're not done until our heart and soul tells us we've impacted enough people. And that could be for somebody when they're 30 years old. You know, for me, I know that's the mission of the rest of my life until God tells me differently. My man, I love it. I love it. I'm with you. I'm on board with that. So, uh, but again, I, I'm so glad I got connected with you. Thank you to Todd and Dave Meltzer. Thanks for that connection. You know, look, I develop relationships once I meet someone. So I look forward to uh, talking to you in the future, possibly even collaborating and doing powerful stuff with you, Sean. So thank you so much for joining us on the show. How can the audience get in touch with you, by the way, or engage with you? Yeah, best way is unblindedhuddle.com unblindedhuddle.com. We're committed to making it the best way to start your day in the world every day, 8.30 a.m. Eastern time. Like in football, you got a huddle. In baseball, you have a huddle pregame. This is how you start your day every day. Oh, I love it, man. That's cool. Great. I'll look into that too. So thank you so much for coming on the show and I look forward to connecting you with in your future. And guys, you've been listening to the What Are You Made Of podcast with your boy, Mike Searock. So thankful, 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 thankful for your support of the show, your listenership, and the movement. And just a heads up, I'm writing a book right now. It's due out the end of 2020. It's called, well, you know what? We just changed it. It was What Are You Made Of? And we decided to make it more powerful. And I'm just letting this out just now. It's going to be called Rocket Fuel. And Mm -hmm. I'm excited. to. We needed a little bit more punch there, Sean. And this book, I'm so excited about this. I'm not writing this book just to you know, sell it. I'm writing this to impact millions of people, guys. This is not something that I'm taking lightly. And just doing to say I wrote a book. So I'm looking forward to that. So look forward to get that out into your hands. And if you want to subscribe to that, you get a free copy. Go to themikecrock.com and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of What Are You Made Of? Be sure to check my website out at themikecrock.com, themikecrock with no K.com, and let us know how we can help you or your business reach its full potential. Feel free to leave a review or follow me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Mike C. Rock Again, thank you for joining me and see you guys on the next episode.